Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Karen Swallow Pryor. She's an award-winning professor of English at Liberty University. She's the author of several books and has written for Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, First Things, Vox, Think Christian, and The Gospel Coalition. She is a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, a senior fellow with Liberty University Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement, a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum, and a member of the Faith Advisor Council of the Humane Society of the United States. Her newest book is On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I'm a fan of your work. And also, I, I love someone that likes glasses. I um, In fact, I'm going to go this week and get new glasses. I, I see many pictures of you with fantastic glasses. So I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I like people that like eyewear. Well, I mean, I'm blind as a bat, so I try to make the most of it. Exactly. You got to lean into it. Yeah, you exactly. So you are, uh, you've written a great book, and it's called On Reading Well, uh, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. You also have a sort of great kind of summary article. Uh, it's the cover article for Christianity Today that deals with the book. Uh, and I want to get into your fantastic book in just a second, but I wanted to ask you about two things. One is, you know, you, for our listeners that might not have heard the first interview I did with you or might not be familiar with your work, like you, you are you cover i think an interesting space on the cultural landscape because you're an evangelical woman that is in higher education that teaches at an evangelical school that's that's headed you know that, that is run by uh, somebody that's been a pretty vocal advocate in support of the president and, and you've been written about as someone who's been uneasy about Trump, Trumpism, and some of the things that Trumpism seems to represent on the cultural landscape of evangelical Christianity. So, I mean, that sounds like just a, a complex, interesting place to <laughs> occupy on a daily basis, right? I mean, like, how is, I mean, what is that awkward? I mean, are you reading articles about yourself thinking, gosh, my hope, my, I hope, you know, uh, this doesn't cause me headaches or things like that? I mean, it's just a very interesting place to occupy. Yeah. Um, no, I, I appreciate that description and observation. Um, and it, it, it is, I mean, I don't, uh, my demographic boxes don't all line up the way, um, people expect them to. Um, but I would have to say that that's really been my whole life. Um, I mean, when I was a young girl growing up in the church, uh, and attending youth group and, you know, going to conservative Bible fundamentalist churches and so forth. I mean, I love, I love literature. Um, I loved edgy films and books and um, I was a little rebellious yet. I loved the Lord or tried to, um, but I didn't feel like the life of the mind that I was striving for was accepted in the church. And then when I went to graduate school, 
at a liberal secular state university and um, had become a stronger Christian by then. My Christianity was rejected, so I didn't fit in there. Um, so I've just, you know, from my childhood through my own education to, you know, my um, uh, teaching position now, I mean, I, I've just never exactly fit in. And um, I think that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've just gotten okay with that. And so I want to be faithful where I am. And I want to, you know, sort of lovingly challenge the people wherever I am. And I, I think, we kind of all have that same calling because no place, no per institution, no people are perfect. And we all have a little bit of um, error that needs to be corrected and a little bit of insight that ought to be heeded. I mean, that's just the nature of the human condition, but I think a lot of us just want to fit in more than we probably should. And for me, that's just not ever really been an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there's something temperamentally in you that kind of likes it being that are you do you think you'd be ha you're happier sort of not fitting in than if you were more in a more homage? Although, you're again, you're pretty your life story makes it hard for me to imagine an institution that would be homogenous for you. But, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, I wonder if that's sort of how your story is shaped out. I mean, right. temperamentally, if some people are just like that. Some right. people function really well. I mean, I'm used to it now. I, I mean, when, when I, you know, when you're in eighth grade, it's kind of hard, but um, I'm used to it now. It's part, I guess it's become part of my identity, but I do, I think you're right. I think there's a, sort of a, a temperamental uh, predisposition toward this. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm um, an ambivert, you know, I'm partly introvert, partly extrovert. I use both my right and my left hand for different things. I'm sort of right brain and left brained. So I, I actually, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor or a biologist, but I actually do sometimes think there's something about my, you know, my physiology that probably is, is sees both sides of both of everything partly, you know, I use both hands. Um, I think with both parts of my brain, I'm creative and analytical. And um, so I think there's just part of me that is, yeah, has that temperament, as you said. It's a good temperament to study and teach literature. It is because literature, I mean, it's, it's, um, I, in, in many ways, I'm a very rigid black and white person and, uh, love the binaries. <laughs> um, but literature, it just completely balances me out the other way. It forces me to be open-ended to sort of see the gray and embrace the gray, um, and so I'm kind of always holding those two aspects of my personality and my, my instincts intention, um, that tendency to be rigid and, and, um, and black and white at, with literature, which is so much more ambiguous and gray. So I love that. Has, has, I'm wondering, like, has Liberty been a different place since Donald Trump's election? Because, I mean, I remember that rally when he came and dedicated the, the, Size of the rally to Martin Luther King on his on his birth, on Martin Luther King Day or whatever. Well, I think we'll dedicate that to Dr. King. But I mean, but you know, but the fact that that Jerry Falwell Jr. has been such such a has had a connection with him. I mean, does that change campus life at all when there's sort of someone when there's someone that you know, like the President of the United States that has a prominent relationship? I mean, is that is is that change the student culture, faculty culture, or is it? pretty much the same as it was two years ago or yeah that's a good question i mean i think that um that the election of trump has changed the country i think it's changed everything um so in that respect i suppose it's changed 
the campus just because everything is so much more polarized now. Um, but I think the campus has changed less than other aspects of my life, like, you know, social media, Twitter, every, everyone's more polarized, everyone's super defensive and hyperbolic. And, um, but campus life, I would actually say has not really changed that much. Um, I mean, maybe we have some, you know, access to more political higher name speakers or something that go to convocation, um, a, a lot more media scrutiny on us. Um, but that's kind of, that's been the case for a long time. And I've been at, this is my, um, I'm just finishing up my 19th year at Liberty. So I've been there for a long time. Um, and you know, I think Trump has changed things for everyone everywhere. Um, but at Liberty, um, you know, there's just so much more going on there. That's, that doesn't have anything to do with, with politics. I mean, in the classroom every day and with students and with my colleagues, um, I would, I actually, I actually think I would say that in many ways, campus life um, serves as kind of a, um, a shelter from all of all the things going on out in the media and the social, social media world. So <laughs> that's, that's your respite. But that's yeah, interesting. It is. Yeah. Isn't Liberty, is Liberty the biggest Christian university now? Um, I think there was a little debate um, about who, whether it was that one and how you count the numbers. I mean, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the biggest by far. I mean, so you just I, need, it, you I, guys, I mean, whether it's the biggest or not, I don't, that's like, I don't care. <laughs> Jerry Fowler Jr. needs to get Trump to tweet out that it's the most fantastic Christian <laughs> university. It's huge. You've got it's, that. You've got that uh, that uh, accent or that that voice down pretty good. I, I work on my Trump a lot, but I, th- I there's so many different ways to do it. That I'm I'm actually a student of Trump impersonators because I think that that which is sad, but uh, it's very sad. <laughs> it's it's disgraceful. Uh, that's it's very funny because you hear a lot of women from like South Philly say like it's a sin. Oh, it's a sin, and he uses the word sin, or he uses the word disgrace. I find the way a lot of like old women from South Philly use the word sin. Oh, that's a sin. Where he's like, it's a disgrace. It's very interesting. So I'm even <laughs> studying language patterns. But so, hey, I saw, I watched over the holiday break, I watched Bird Box and I saw you tweet about it and even ask, you were like asking for Twitter feedback. Now you're writing something about it right now, but. Yeah, this, I'm going to write something about it. I haven't gotten to it yet, but uh, that's, yes, I'll be writing a little review of it. You said something on, on Twitter I found interesting. You said you almost thought like a reverse false story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think this, uh, the story opens in hell, right? I mean, kind of a literal hell with burning and and all kinds of, you know, killing and uh, torture and, and torment. Um, and then it's kind of a journey to paradise, right? It, without, without too many spoilers. I, I guess maybe that's already a spoiler, but um, it kind of ends in a Garden of Eden. Yeah, it's it's the second half of the divine comedy journey, kind of. It's 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 the bottom up sort of. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you could see is the is the is the ending. Is it um, you know is it is it paradise after the fall or before the fall? And I guess that's what I have to work out in my mind as I write it because I think it's you know I think it's not heaven exactly. Um, I think it's more like an Eden that's probably still capable of of having the fall. Does that make sense? So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a not pe- redemption. It's- That's why I call it a reverse Genesis story because I think it the, it ends in Genesis, not Revelation. Yeah, yeah, it's still, there's still fragility and finitude. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too because the place of faith, not sight. I mean, you, 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 
mm-hmm. you're going somewhere and you don't know what, if it's really there and, and you can't see. It's just such an interesting... And I also thought there was an M. Night Shyamalan kind of quality. Yeah, to, yeah. Like, yeah. never show the the entity, which made it I so much it. scarier. So much better. So much better. That's, I actually, I loved A Quiet Place, but, um, and A Quiet Place is a little bit smarter than this. Um, but I, it was much, Bird Box was much more suspenseful because of how the veil was not lifted um, on so, in so many ways, uh, not to, yeah. Um, and it didn't show exactly what this thing was. I think that's more scarier. Well, I will, I will save, I, I can't wait to read your review. Cause I, like I said, I, I, I liked the film. I thought it was, I thought it was a great piece of suspense. So on to your book on reading. Well, it, it, it's interesting. And in your Christianity Today piece, you say people like are reading Every this is sort of a, an essay based on your book, and and you talk about how people seem to be reading everything now, but on a screen and in snippets and things like that. I mean, John Pud Horowitz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, said that the difference Twitter has made is that before email and Twitter and everything, the biggest thing you got was like opening the mail in an office like Commentary, and maybe you were you got a review piece and or you were asked to solicit for an endorsement, and you start writing it, and he said like that was a big highlight in the day, and what what flowed from it was slow and gradual and now twitter has taken the place for a lot of intellectuals and a lot of just common people normal everyday digital citizens as like opening the mail and and so it's more than email and so something's out there and linked to an article and you react to it and boom and and in less than an hour you've changed your opinion you've moved it you've thought about it. so you're reading all the time but not as you're saying necessarily reading well you're just kind of consuming and and and, and interacting so i mean so you're taught you're trying to sort of look at reading differently than where the gravitational or tidal pull, I think is pulling people when they engage words, right? Digitally. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I guess I w- I'm just <laughs> trying to return us to, uh, a, at least for a little bit to the good old days before, um, the internet and social media, when you could sit and I, I, as I say in the book, I find this hard myself. Um, I mean, I grew up just sitting and reading, books for hours on end and I didn't have a phone I was constantly checking or email that was distracting me um you know I mean I I know television radio existed for decades and people will say that's just you know it's people are always claiming that the sky is falling in with the newest and greatest technology but I actually think and and I'm, I'm this isn't really an original thought I'm sure many um cultural critics would have said this and would agree that I think that this digital world of social media is as significant a change as the printing press was, you know, 500 years ago. I think it's going to change, you know, changing the culture and our, the way our minds work and think um, in that dramatic a way and for good and bad. I mean, there, there are pros and cons that go with, with, um, with books and with, um, the digital media. It's interesting. I heard Jerry Seinfeld on Howard Stern and they, he was talking about how he came up with comedians uh, uh, drinking co- in cars, drinking right. coffee. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, you know, I looked at what my daughter was doing and, you know, she's on the phone, little screen. I thought the medium is the message. What kind of show works well on a little screen? It'd be short and mostly faces talking. Mm-hmm. Now, I just thought that's so interesting. Here's a guy that had the biggest sitcom in history and mm-hmm. he's thinking, watching his daughter with a different kind of medium and redesigns a show which is incredibly successful. I mean, but just on looking like at his daughter interacting on a screen and saying, "I could my my, my show won't work now." Like, <laughs> I mean, I I, I just think it goes right. to what you're saying. Like the the medium is the message, and it it is powerful in ways that are often elusive, right? Mm-hmm. 
and and I think I, I think it's just a matter again I, I'm someone who has uh, has uh, emphatically embraced the technology of social media and so forth um, so it's I'm not I'm not calling for a rejection of it but I'm calling for a recognition of the way it's changing us and an intentionality about you know kind of countering that with some other practices like reading uh, a book for a long time um, as opposed to the kind of reading that we we do on the internet myself included your book is an interesting has an interesting kind of format because it, it it's it's a way into virtues and also a way into literature and a connection between how re- the practice of reading itself can really bring, cultivate virtue. And, and so you have sort of different groups of virtues, like the traditional sort of Aristotelian virtues, the, the spiritual virtues, faith, open love, and you start conclude with the heavenly virtues. But you talk about how reading well is, is not always easy. And also that we have this challenge that, that classically, people read literature and, and saw there was a moral dimension to it and, and sort of in a in a sort of late modern world it, it we almost we, we everybody thinks that any, that any kind of looking for morality in literature either becomes moralistic or destroys the art form and that there's just good stories bad stories and there and, and there's kind of a a removal of the of the virtue morality piece of literature and you think that's been deleterious right to our understanding of what reading can be absolutely i mean the the some, you know some people are reading this and commenting that this is you know or or thinking this is moral criticism that i'm doing here which it, which is focusing on the message or the lesson in literature and and that's part of it but it's that's only a small part of it because it, it what i'm talking about with with literature and i cover primarily novels in this and as well as some short stories um is what you referred to earlier is the medium is the message there. It's not just what a novel says, but it's how it says it. it's how that form forms us. When we immerse ourselves into, you know, a um, long narrative that is revealed slowly over time and reveals a character and reveals, you know, the, the consequences of decisions, um, as they unfold, there's a formative aspect to that um, that affects us for good or ill or something in between. I mean, even Plato, who um, you know famously wanted to banish the poets from uh, the the Republic, recognized. I mean, he wanted to do that because he recognized the power, the formative power that literature has. He thought it was a power to be avoided. Aristotle saw it as, as a power to be harnessed and saw it as a, an um, educative uh, uh, process for citizens. Um, and so from the very beginning of uh, back into ancient Greek philosophy, um, thinkers recognize the power that literature has to form us. So we are foolish to ignore that power. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You mentioned something in the book I found interesting. You say your students, sometimes you notice when you ask a question about a story or a novel that you've assigned, that they look up, their, their faces look up from the text, but literally, that they're also sort of figurative, figuratively looking mm-hmm. up. Like that, that they're sort of looking for high con- abstract concepts immediately, as opposed to just tending to like, the words on the right. text and, and what's going on in the narrative world here. That, 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 that there's a sort of jump that, that sort of mitigates reading well, right? That, that, that if you're too abstract too quickly, you're not seeing what's in front of you. You're actually you're imposing things on as opposed to letting things rise up from the story, right? Sure. I mean, I wish I had thought to draw this analogy in the book. It's just occurring to me now, but we hear this all the time when we talk about listening skills, right? When, when two people are discussing something, you know, the person, you know, if, if we're just thinking rather than listening to what the other person is saying, if we're just thinking about what we want to say next, then we're actually not listening. Well, the same is true of reading. We have to actually be sure we understand the words on the page and what they are saying before we have our own response. So it's, it's the same idea in, you know, oral conversation as it, as it is in reading, but we live in this world where we're so, we're so quick to jump to what we want to say or what we think. Um, I mean, I think there are lots of reasons for this in terms of teaching literature. I think that there's just for the past several decades been so much emphasis, especially at, you know, in high school and lower levels of reading, um, not on attentiveness to the text itself, but to, oh, how does this make you feel? Or, oh, what does creativity, does this inspire in you? Which are all, you know, fine things to talk about, but only after we actually understand what the text is saying in the same way that to have a discussion with a person in person or even on Twitter. I mean, how many times do we see on Twitter people who are completely misreading what someone said, or if there's some ambiguity in the original message, not bothering to double check, well, what did you mean by that? Or how, you know, how can you think that we just, we just don't do that anymore. We're so quick and eager to share our own views, however disconnected they might be from what's actually going on. Yeah. And it seems to me that, that there's something about like good art or good literature, right? The way it morally forms us is descriptively, not prescriptively. 
As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. that's usually like this is why those Christian movies with Kirk Cameron are always terrible, right? Because you're you're right. it's just shouting the. The, the the moral the moral overwhelms anything aesthetic right it's just kind of right it's just characters carrying a billboard right right, right. and so just as the kind of really powerful stories you talk about like uh the tale of two cities or 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 huckleberry finn or the road i mean the 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 way they conform is is the descriptive influence they have on us likewise you have to be i guess in a mode right to pick up on the de- there, there, I mean, guess maybe there's a flip side for the reader that corresponds to prescription, maybe like eisegesis or something, where where you're just kind of whatever the flip reality is that that's what ruins great literature, right? When you're not just when you're not attending to the description that's there, but you're sort of in the prescriptive mode that makes the creator uh, a, a bad artist. Oh, right, right. So the prescriptive mode creates both bad artists and bad readers. Right. And, and that's, I mean, especially within Christianity, um, you know, 21st century American evangelical Christianity, you know, we have, we just are, um, are consumed with the idea of, of conversion and redemption and the message and the truth and all, all those things are important, but we, um, we want to overlook the process and the means and the way um, and the form. And uh, we need to really kind of balance both of those. I mean, it's, it's just it's the same idea as speaking the truth in love. It's not just the truth. It's also the love, which is the form. You have this great line I, in this section in the first chapter of the book, which is about this novel, uh, the novel is Tom Jones, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, or the history of Tom Jones, a foundling. And you talk about satire and you say the satirist loves in the way of God who chastens those whom he loves. There's only one thing worse than being chastened. That is not being chastened. And I think of that sort of, I mean, I always think the scariest image of God is sort of like God is Woody Allen, you know, like, I mean, I thought you could handle this and kind of, you know, be, but, but that's interesting though. I, I don't think that I, I have not often heard somebody think of satire as like the love of God, right? As the refining love of God. And so, so it's interesting that I, I don't hear many Christians lifting up the satirist <laughs> as doing God's work. When, when did you first, when did, when did that dawn on you? Well, my, one of my areas of specialty in my PhD work um, was, is Jonathan Swift, the 18th century Anglican clergyman who was also the greatest English satirist. He, he's most famous for writing the um, essay, A Modest Proposal, in which he proposes that um, the Irish raised children for the British to eat. Um, because he was basically, yeah, he was basically um, literalizing the metaphor that the the British policy, the English policies, were devouring the Irish, and so he's just made it literal. Um, and so, in studying this great uh, Christian who was so theologically sound and rich and serious, who wrote this biting satire um, and used it to, you know, to tell the truth and to correct people. Um, but he was so, it was, it's such, um, such bitter satire that many people consider him to be a misanthrope or to be, um, you know, even insane. Um, but I see when I read him and study his life, I see a man who loves humanity so much that he's so heartbroken that, um, they do the things that they do that he, and he cares enough to try to correct them because, because the true misanthrope doesn't care. The true misanthrope just, you know, um, just gives up um, and walks away. You have to care. And, and as, as a professor, I mean, I, I think I, you know, I, I see some of this because 
um, when I see students being, you know, uh, doing poor work or, or even being dishonest or taking shortcuts and things like that, I mean, it would be easier for me to just ignore those things. But if I care, I address them um, or things in their personal life that I, as I get to know them. Um, I, so it, it's, it's a lot easier not to care. It's a lot easier to just let things go and to let, let people um, go merrily on their way to destruction. But um, the satirist cares like God cares, I think. I heard a conversation between William Crystal. He used to be editor the Weekly Standard. He does this podcast where he had Harvey Mansfield, the 14th. So he's like older than the country generationally, but, but uh, he's at the Kennedy School of Government. And they were talking all about the political theory behind Gulliver's Travels. And it, it was, what? I'll send it, I'll send I mean, it to you. It's, yes, send me it's that. mind blowing. Gulliver's Travels is amazing. It's mind blowing. And they were talking all about it, all these like Machiavelli critiques and all these, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it is, I, it was the best, the swift discussion was unbelievable. I was just, I, it was unreal. I was blown away. I was like, why didn't they tell me any of this in high school? But, um, yeah, and, and Christian uh, Christians, you know, they're reading. I don't know. They're all, they they just all they they think that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien are you know the the end alpha and omega of of Christian thinking within Christian literature, and, and they're fine. But they're such a rich treasure treasure trove of brilliant writers far beyond those that that Christians just aren't even aware of or don't even bother to um, to grapple with and swift is one of them he's just amazing yeah and, and tolkien and lewis are standing at the at least relative to our historiography the end of that tradition commenting yeah, on, like, exactly, bar- commenting exactly. on it borrowing from it i mean they're not yeah. seminal figures in it they're right. they're 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 much more modern figures looking back on the as appreciators of a tradition right 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 you also uh, you have a great discussion in the book on uh, of a tale of two cities and you talk about in that section, the the the, dis, the distinction between what's just and fair, and then also how justice as a virtue can be kind of ruined, right? If it's not chastened by a kind of penultimate uh, bracket or horizon, that that basically, you know, that that if we if we don't realize that we can't get anything proximate to perfect or even really really good justice, sometimes that that will be that, that will that will have monstrous societal results, right? Right, right. I mean, A Tale of Two Cities is is so fascinating in the context of the things we're dealing with today when we're talking about you know, justice or social justice or whatever you want to call it, because, um, you know, because basically, you know, this Dickens retelling of, of the French Revolution um, highlights how one, you know, extreme injustice sustained over a long period of time that's ignored and not corrected leads to injustice from the other extreme um, as opposed to actual justice, which is like all virtues somewhere in the middle. Um, And I think, you know, we're, we're wrestling with some of those things today where we have ignored um, so many injustices and so many sins for so long that the correction is an overcorrection. And there's a lot for us to learn, I think, in, you know, in, in a tale of two cities, it's more complicated than that. But just the fact that, um, you know, like all like virtue itself, um, justice avoids either extreme, an extreme of deficiency or an extreme of excess. You also, you know, it's it's one of the things I really appreciate the about the book is the is the the breadth of which the breadth of literature you draw from. So, you know, you're, go, you're going from classical literature or we consider like a, a, you know, at least a late modern English classic, like 
like Dickens to a real contemporary piece of post-apocalyptic literature like The Road uh, by Cormac McCarthy. It's interesting because for, you know, for many reasons, right, that I think our, you look at like serial dramas and how many of the, the really breakthrough ones are, are like The Walking Dead or Battlestar Galactica, or you could go on and on, are, are, are some form of post-apocalyptic story, right? Or, 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 and you, you talk about hope and you say something really powerful about the hope, the hope of the father with the son and, and how it's a, it's, it's a natural hope that's a bridge to theological hope. But you, you talk about this sort of, uh, you have you talk about how hope requires a couple things, right? It requires, um, uh, shoot, I'm looking for the, my my marker, but it was something like you say that that uh, the four conditions of hope are that it re- re- that it regards something good in the future that is difficult but possible to obtain, and and you see that as a driving force. Yeah, that's, right, that's Aquinas, sort of, uh, by the way. But yes, <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. You're great But that's an interesting. I mean thing that that and maybe it's it's interesting because if faith isn't always the easiest bridge between the christian and the non-christian mm-hmm. hope seems to be one that everybody needs right just to get to, to live a meaningful life and here you find it in this post-apocalyptic tale yeah i mean i i just the road is so powerful i mean it course uh, as i say in, in the book apocalypse just means revelation right and this is what uh post-apocalyptic literature does is it kind of strips away everything that we know about the world we live in all of its comforts and surfaces and styles and manners and leaves us with the essence so that we can just really deal with that essence and that's what we have in the road is you know the this essential relationship between a father um and a boy and their their Quest to just literally stay alive and to um, get someplace safe and to avoid all the dangers. Um, and so by stripping away all of the, you know, all the externals of our world and focusing on these essentials of, of the human condition, it just helps us to see what it is that we really need. And we need, um, you know, we need goodness. Uh, and there are so many uh, drops of goodness, as I say in the, in the story, you know, the, the famous scene with the Coke can, if, if you haven't read it, I won't give more away and, and the swimming hole and just, uh, the cans of food that they come across. I mean, human, the, you know, we can find goodness in the most horrible conditions. Anyone who's gone on a, on a mission, trip to an underdeveloped country has seen this, seen how the joy that children have in playing with a stick, you know, amidst all the poverty is really no different, or maybe it's even greater in quality uh, of the joy that we see uh, in children here playing with their expensive, you know, go-karts. And so that's what post, I mean, I think that's why we like post-apocalyptic literature so much today, because it strips away all this excess that's so much defines at least American culture today and helps us to see past all that to the essence of what it means to be human. And of course, in this chapter, I focus on, you know, on what it means to have hope because that's something that we all need. Yeah. It also, it also puts the question like in full force in front of us, right? How much of who you are is socially constructed? Right. Like, 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 would you, would you pull away church, school, job, spouse, all the, you in, in the conventional ways understood, there's and and who are you then? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, you look at a show like The Walking Dead. The zombies are window dressing. That's yeah. not what the scary thing is in The Walking Dead. It's other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's the scary thing. It, 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 encountering 
humanity in, 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 without any governors on it, which is which can be horrifying. And yet, but you're right, right? That makes the goodness in a context like that all the more essential and sweet in some ways when when it when it comes forth in that context. Right, and then we have the you know in the book we also have the characters who, um, when all those essentials are stripped away, become you know not only bad but you know unspeakably bad. And then the mother who was a good person, but who did not, you know, didn't have the will, didn't have the hope that it took in order to continue on the way that the father does. Um, and so, yeah, that, that kind of stripping away reveals who we are, who we all really are. So do you, do you, I wonder, do you, do you, as someone who teaches literature in a Christian, an evangelical Christian higher educational institution, I, I wonder what are the challenges you often hear about intellectual freedom and things like that. I mean, I think that there are constraints in every context, right? I mean, we see this all the time, right? Now it's it's often the, the most censorious parts of the culture used to be on the right. And now seemingly in some places it's on the left, right? And university campuses and mm-hmm. things like this. Were, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what what are the the unique challenges in your context as opposed to maybe some others of pursuing the intellectual endeavor you do and sort of, and how it's connected to the good life or their unique sort of challenges and maybe advantages from that would be different if you were say at Duke or Stanford or, you know, a place like that. Yeah. I mean, um, I'd have to think, I mean, there are challenges. I mean, but my first response to the question is that I, I, this is one of the reasons why I, love being at Liberty so much is because I have, you know, I went to a secular institution that was very left. Um, I have taught other places, um, a variety of other, other places, um, including um, one institution that is very leftist. Um, And I find more intellectual and academic freedom in a place like Liberty. I mean, of course we are united by a common telos, a common purpose, a common set of beliefs that, um, a common set of beliefs, sorry, there's the dog, um, that, that unites us and gives purpose to everything we do. And so actually I find that very freeing. When I've taught in other contexts, it feels very surfacey, as though, okay, we're just studying this work of literature, we're studying its elements, its history, and so forth, but it, it doesn't fit into a larger vision of life um, that um, gives it all meaning. Um, so I find much more um, freedom in a place like Liberty because I feel like we're doing all of the same things that you would do at another institution, but those things are all parts of a larger, you know, fabric of meaning. They're not just discrete, you know, pieces on their own. Um, but, you know, of course, audience is everything. And so, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm teaching an evangelical Christian audience. Some of those students, especially in the lower level classes, might come from backgrounds where they haven't been taught to appreciate and value the arts. And so I'm, you know, I pour everything into winning them over. Um, I, when I get into upper level English or graduate courses, um, then I might get students who are at risk of, um, you know, being so jaded that or so, um, you know, tired of Christianity or, you know, just questioning um, that they, you know, I'm trying to teach them how Christianity and um, Christian worldview can um, be robust and life-giving if they've experienced the opposite. So I I just, um, there are challenges, but I I love those challenges. I I love teaching um, these students um, 
this literature. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the fabric of meaning question because that's that's a huge and you write you write about you talk about Charles Taylor in the beginning of the book in, in the intro it, it, and this pr- challenge of that fabric of meaning being taken away in the wider culture. You think of like we know f- so much more about the natural world than Aristotle could have ever dreamed, and yet we feel much more alienated mm-hmm. from it because we can't ask purpose and meaning questions, which he thought w- is essential, right? To because we're rational animals. Those, I mean, we're going to naturally ask teleological questions because of why we're bi- the way we're designed, right? And so that right, that, right. that 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 paradox that we that we know much more about the kind of things he'd be interested in, and yet we're so much more alienated because we don't have we're, we're inabil- our inability to access in the wider culture the, the purpose question. Right, and and it, it's like uh, you know we're designed to eat and it's like, you know, having all this food in front of us and being unable to eat it for some reason. I mean, it it just, it's just going to lead to despair and frustration and um, purposelessness. You mentioned in the book, in a chapter on faith, you you actually, you quote Luther in that chapter in in a discussion of another piece of literature. But I wonder, you know, because Aristotle plays such a big part in in your book and in, in, in the conception mm-hmm. of it, which I mean, Luther w- was allergic to that stuff, right? He thought that he thought <laughs> that Aristotle's anthropology was kind of opposed to what he saw as the the Pauline biblical one, where where the exterior shapes the interior, right? It seems to him this is what Jesus is always critiquing people for thinking, when really he thinks it's the interior that it's a fruit metaphor that the interior has to change, and, and that that change that sort of you know, flows from the exterior. Do you, are, are there, I mean, that, does that tension strike you as, as someone who appreciates Aristotle and the virtues, who's also an evangelical Protestant? I mean, the, like, like how do you hold all that stuff in, in relative tension? Yeah. No, that I mean, it goes back to the first part of our conversation where I talked about holding uh, these different, you know, competing impulses in my temperament and thinking in intention. Um, I mean, yes, I'm a, I'm a Protestant. I'm evangelical. Um, but I think I think it's I think that it's it's both. I mean, yes. Yeah, so the, the fruit um, we begin with the fruit, but the fruit has to be cultivated, right? The, the fruit has either fertile soil or infertile soil. Um, the fruit is tended and cared for. So I think that you know that you know our 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 salvation and our knowledge, all of those things begin with God. Um, but I think that God uses. You know, he uses people, he uses the environment, he, um, to, um, to do his work, excuse me. And then in terms of how we grow or don't grow, uh, whether we grow well or grow ill, those are, those are highly dependent upon the environment, um, and the culture that we find ourselves in. So I think that we, I mean, why else do we want religious freedom? Why else do we want a certain kind of government? Because we think that those are the things that lead to human flourishing. And for the Christian, human flourishing means the things that lead to people finding, um, you know, hearing the word of God, being saved and uh, making disciples. So there are environments where that is that is more likely and ones in which that is less likely. And I think if we look at what's going on in the world around us, sadly, we know that it's where the church is persecuted, where that's more likely to happen and less likely to, to happen in places um, like America, where we've, you know, we've really gotten soft, as to put it mildly. <laughs> as, <laughs> as an academic, you, you're not just at, in your own classroom or your own university. I'm sure you go to professional societies some of which are probably have Christian affinity, some of which don't. 
in the pluralistic sort of environments, do, how does the meaning and fabric of meaning question go with other people in your guild, in your discipline? Like, do, for you as a Christian, and one that is increasingly a sort of public intellectual figure in, mm-hmm. in, in certain circles, in many circles, how, how does that, how do the, do, do those discussions play out with your colleagues who are not people of religious faith, but in your discipline, who, who you study? you know, who are, yeah. who are in the same background as you. Yeah. My particular discipline in general, speaking in general terms is, um, particular is especially hostile to Christianity. Um, it's a very elitist, um, specialty. Um, 18th century British literature primarily is, is my, is my main specialty. Um, a lot of dead white men, <laughs> uh, not, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, um, and yet there's a lot of religion in, in with, you know, and, and nominal Christianity, at least within, uh, those writers, but, uh, it's a very, um, philosophical, um, uh, period of literature and, uh, tends to draw people who are very, um, philosophical and secular and, and liberal. And so, um, it's, you know, it, there's not a lot of, um, welcoming of, of authentic belief, like you might find in, uh, the Victorian specialty, which is even more, um, it deals more explicitly with, with evangelical religion. So it, it can, it can be tricky. Um, uh, but I have, you know, I have, uh, work to develop relationships with a, a couple of, of editors in the academic journals and um, they respect good work. And so I try to produce that. And, um, and that's a mission field as well. Academia. Um, when I first began, I envisioned myself being more involved in um, writing scholarly articles um, and less as a public intellectual, but the Lord has just kind of directed me another way. And it's, it's hard to juggle all those things, but I'm just trying to um, go through the doors that seem to be opening and I'm trying to keep my hands in both worlds. Well, that seems like a prudent decision, which is the first virtue you deal with. And, and I'm thankful <laughs> uh, because had you not gone that way, I probably, I might not have discovered your work. So, which I, I greatly enjoy. So thank you for talking with me and for writing this book, Finding the Good Life, the Great Books on Reading Well. It's a fantastic book, especially, I mean, I think it's a great gift for someone if, you know, or, or a book to buy if you're a reader, but also a great thing if you're trying to encourage someone to get into literature or if you yourself are like, hey, I'd like to get more into great literature and I'm looking for a way to get into it. I think, I think this is a great entry. Well, I wrote it for that reason. I hope it will. I hope people will, who don't feel like they know how to read literature well will be encouraged to pick it up. And uh, I hope that I can offer them some, uh, some guidance and inspiration. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Karen for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book on reading well. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.